Hello, and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past. Be it the nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews, or the detailed tour-level analysis, we have you covered. Welcome to the latest Tennis with an Accent podcast. This is your host, Matt Zemek. Sakib Ali is uh, producing the show, but... Uh, tending to various matters, and, and uh, he's taking a breather for this one. You do want to check out Sakib's recent podcast on the new uh, documentary from Alex Gibney, noted filmmaker on Boris Becker. Definitely want to check that out. Definitely want to check out the other podcast that Sakib uh, has recently put together. Uh, so we're giving Sakib a break today. And joining us is our in-house analyst, consultant, tennis expert, Andrew Burton. He's back. To review Rome and, and you know a little bit of a look ahead to Rowan Garros, but mostly on you know what happened at Rome and how that kind of sets up uh, the French Open. And so, Andrew, as we welcome you back, uh, let's start with you know Danil Medvedev and Club Med turned into Club Mud uh, that he was able to take on these heavy conditions in Rome. And you know it's been pointed out by several people, and it's worth reiterating here. Dominic team has not won a clay masters. He's not won a clay 1000 point tournament. Other, you know, David Ferrer has not won a clay 1000 point tournament. Uh, uh, other, you know, very notable, highly credentialed, accomplished clay court players. We can mention have not won a clay 1000 point tournament. And Danil Medvedev has who would have thunk it as you like to say, Andrew, funny old game. Yeah, sports, eh? Uh, I tweeted on Sunday that uh, uh, Daniel Medvedev was now one for one in Rome finals where Roger Federer went zero for four. Uh, So funny old game, you know, it's why you lace them up and all of the the cliches you want to throw in in there. Um, But I think... um, sort of hard to call it a fluke really don't you think Matt with uh, the players that he beat along the way that uh, he you know you could argue he got a little bit of luck with uh, his quarterfinal opponent uh, Yannick Huntsman who was having the the tournament of his career let alone the the clay to- court tournament of his career but uh, to to get to the title uh, he had to go through Sasha Zverev then he had to play Stefanos Tsitsipas uh, in the semis. And he beat the up-and-coming Holger Rune in the final. He didn't drop a set in any of those matches. And um, he did what Daniel Medvedev does, I think, which is to find a way to get the opponent to play on his terms. I mean, he certainly wasn't beating a bunch of chumps. Uh, that that's for that's for darn sure. So, I, I think to me, like you know, with with Runa, I mean, you know, Runa made uh, you know the the uh, Monte Carlo final, and so he now backs that up with the Rome final. So, like, he's a serious player. But do you think that you know the, that the needle, the, the the needle on the fuel tank was running a little low? Uh, for Runa and that, you know, Medvedev is a little bit more experienced at running these long distance races, which are tennis tournaments. Um, do you think that had anything to do with it? And do you think that the, the two week format uh, in Rome with, you know, you know, having the 
day on day off format belonging to a major tournament, you know, which Medvedev is obviously much more used to, he knows how to handle it a lot more, a lot better than Runa does. How many, how much do you think any of those other components might've played into the ultimate result we had? Um, Hard to say for sure. I think six matches versus five matches when I was getting ready to, to chat with you, I was, you know, going through the, the matches at the, the tournament website and, you know, it was sort of like, oh yeah, the, 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 it was a 96 player field rather than a 56 player field. And I think that really does change things up. It possibly as well means that, um you 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 may get more uh unusual players in the the second or third rounds rather than it filtering down to the seeds very quickly um with runa he's he's obviously growing into his body as is alcaraz it's quite interesting that that both runa and alcaraz are having physical issues um, already. Uh, Runa, I think, had some issues against Rublev when he played him in Monte Carlo. And he he had all kinds of stuff going on when he played Bodic van der Sandskoop and, you know, snatched a first tournament victory away from Bodic uh, in the final set. So I don't know if either Alcaraz or Runa are, you know, the full finished physical item that they're going to be uh, two or three years down the line, which is a slightly scary thought that if, if you've got someone um, like Holger Runa able to make two Masters 1000s final as he turns 20, and then Carlos Alcaraz doesn't need to prove to anybody that he can play on clay, and these guys aren't yet the finished deal, then they're going to be pretty form- formidable two or three years from now. That takes nothing away from Daniel. Uh, the ability to, um, to come up with something new uh, mid-career, and, and clay was, was absolutely not his surface either in 2023 or before 2023. So to come up with something new, yes, the conditions were, were pretty soggy all week in Rome and that affected both the, the ATP tournament and the WTA tournament. Um, but nobody could say that uh, Medvedev wasn't a worthy winner of this tournament. This is something worth diving into in greater detail that you know, Runa and Alcaraz both going through the, 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 the obvious challenge facing a young athlete of growing into your body and being able to maintain a high level of performance, a high level of technique, while physical changes and evolutions are occurring. And this naturally brings up a guy named Rafael Nadal. And just for people who are wondering, okay, you guys are going to talk about Rafa? Well, for two things. One, yes, we are going to talk about him. But secondly, we're going to devote a standalone podcast to him. Like we're not just going to like do the drive by three, four minutes on Rafa. No, we're going to do a standalone and that's going to come later in the week uh, by the, by the first weekend of the French open, uh, you know, on Memorial day weekend at the end of May. So that's in the works. We're definitely going to give Rafa full treatment, 
not so much in this podcast, but, you know, talking, just, just mentioning Rafa's name, like there's a very rich example of someone who, you know, grew into his body and, and learned earlier rather than later uh, how to deal with that. And of course, you know, he did pay a physical price. Did uh, he did, it did take a physical toll on him, but like his longevity was certainly a lot greater than many experts predicted. So as we go back to Runa and Alcaraz, Andrew, um, you know, what are you, what do you look for when players, you know, it's clear that, you know, they haven't reached their physical peak. They haven't reached uh, the, the maximum in terms of their physical capacities, in terms of their strength, in terms of their bulk, their muscular development. They're still learning like what works for them in terms of being, you know, having the right balance of muscularity, speed, you know, being a little, a little heavier. Like this has been a Yannick Sinner problem, not being he- bulked up enough to get more beef on that serve. Um, but, you know, like what works for Yannick Sinner and what works for Runa, what works for Alcaraz, they're not the same bodies uh, and they don't have the same playing styles. So there is obviously a balance here. What are what do you look for when you when you see like a, a young tennis player, you know, early 20s, obvious talent, but obviously needing to grow in certain ways? Uh, you know, in terms of how they handle that process, what are the things that you generally look at in terms of how this player is fundamentally uh, handling the challenge of growing into a body with a with a promising game and and trying to strike that balance of, you know, making the right tweaks, but not an overhaul, you know, doing little things that are attainable in the short term, uh, while also trying to evolve in the longer term. So like these parallel tracks, there's a short term track, and there's a long term track. How do you look at the ways in which players uh, handle these two parallel tracks at the same time? Well, I think that, I mean, you use the word evolution, which I think is, is, is a, is a good way to look at it. Um, so it's accretive. It takes, it, it takes place over time. Although the, the very great players, the ones who we remember 20 to 30 years from now, they all kind of have a characteristic, which I think Runa is, is, is demonstrating now, and I think Alcaraz has demonstrated it already, which is that they learn what it takes to be in the final four of just about every tournament that, that, that they play in. Say, you know, above 70% of the tournaments they play in, you can you can pretty much pencil them in for the semi-final. Um, Alcaraz, I think, got um, you know knocked off his perch this time around by uh, Morosian, a qualifier from Hungary, um, in in a very surprising fashion, and it was um, you know Morosian played a kind of game style that I think Alcaraz wasn't able to handle on the day and all credit to Morosian. But I think that, that most of us coming into the tournament were thinking pretty much, okay, Carlos Alcaraz, he's won in Madrid. You know, we expect to see him in the semi-final at least in Rome. And so we were surprised that, that he didn't. I think Runa is, is close to the point and it'll be interesting to see uh, how he... Um, does at Roland Garros because obviously there's going to be a lot of attention to him. 
but by this time next year, I think that we'll be thinking, okay, Holger Rune is uh, someone that you expect to see at the semi-final stage. What does that? Some of it is is physical strength, uh, you know, greater strength in the knees, greater conditioning. Uh, some of it is understanding, you know, more about how the game is played. Um, the first year you're on tour, you're someone new. The second year you're on tour, people have kind of figured out what your weak spots are and then they, they press on them. So you have to figure out how to defend that. The third and fourth years on tour, you know, maybe you, you, you figured out how to defend your weak spots, get more out of your strengths, but also add to your strengths. But the mental side of it, I think, Matt, is so important in terms of figuring out ways not to beat yourself. And, and all of the greats, it's a cliche that we've said this over and over again, but, but they, they can win when they're not playing their best. And that typically means figuring out how to, to have the focus, have the concentration in the round of 32, the round of 16, when you come up against a hot opponent and figuring out, okay, now how do I, how do I make this work? And that's something that in previous podcasts, we've talked about Sasha Zverev as someone who, who looked as though he was potentially going to take his place among the real elite players, uh, very promising as a teenager, started to make breakthroughs, winning Masters 1000s uh, five or more years ago, but never really learned how to get past the round of 32 and round of 16, particularly in majors. And pencils himself in automatically for the quarterfinal, the semifinal, and the finals. So it's being able to, you know, yes, have the physical development, but but also have the mental development that means that you win even when you're not playing your best. You know what it takes to do that. One thing I definitely noticed in both Runa and Alcaraz. I mean, Alcaraz kind of you know, made this impossible to avoid noticing, but like, so with Runa, like this becomes more and more apparent each time I watch him. And especially in this very successful clay season for him with two different finals in Monte Carlo and Rome, like Runa is definitely willing to find various different ways to win a point. Uh, like Alcaraz kind of has set the standard among the younger generation. Uh, but Runa really seems to be following that path now like his his drop shot isn't where Alcaraz's is and his you know natural just strength of of ball striking his his heft off the ground isn't where Alcaraz is like Alcaraz obviously sets a higher standard but the common thread that I see in both is this adaptability yes willingness to do different things and you know one adaptation we've seen from Alcaraz this clay season is the double serve the the wide uh, add doubles kicker and, you know, like you, most of the time Alcaraz is going to go wide with it, but every once in a while he's going to go down the tee with it so that no one can, you know, just camp out in the doubles alley. So like he, he, it's clear that Alcaraz is thinking about different ways to get opponents off balance. And Runa also shows that, that he can play the baseline game, but he can also play an all court game. He's willing to use touch. He's willing to come to the net. So how would you evaluate um, where Holger Runa is in terms of, you know, becoming a complete 
tennis player? Like how, how far along do you think he is? And, you know, as we consider this transition from thousand point uh, tournaments and best of three to best of five, and a lot of people are, you know, going to question his ability to hang in the arena in a long five setter against, let's say a Zverev, if you know, like put him against Zverev or Medvedev in a fifth set, you know, most people would probably say, oh, the more experienced player, the, you know, the, the more physically developed player will have a chance to wear him down. How, how much do you think that the evolution in Runa's game and this ability to adapt to whatever he's seen on the other side of the net, do you think it's ready for the test that he's about to see at Roland Garros? Or do you think that, eh, you know, probably need a year or two for the, the physical side and some other components to fill out before we assign Runa maybe top tier status uh, along with Alcaraz, Djokovic, uh, and maybe Medvedev as well? Well, what's the expression that, that people sometimes have, you know, buy, hold or sell, you know, a particular yes. player? I mean, I'm, I'm just I really am a strong buy at the moment for uh, for Holger Rune. One of the things that I saw when he played Novak um, was at the start of the third set when they'd had a rain delay he'd been uh he, he'd managed to to break serve but then was down love 30 on his own service game when the rain came in uh they came back out and novak took the next two points to to pocket the set six four and you thought okay all right now here's where experience really kicks in and novak's got him right where he wants him uh, but blink and you miss Runa going four love up in the third set. As I often say, you know, I did not see that coming. But what was Runa doing to get there? Well, one of the things that he did was was something that a, a long time ago Novak did to Rafa, which is he basically said, okay, I'm going to trade balls with you I'm not going to try and uh, finish the rally quickly. I'm not going to go for, you know, the first attacking ball. I'm going to hit the ball with heavy topspin down the center and we'll see who blinks first. And for someone of Runa's pedigree and experience, having, uh, you would call it onions, I think, Matt, <laughs> to, to, to do that with Novak, who, you know, a multi-time French Open winner, you know, clay pedigree as, as, as long as your arm, you know, second in, you know, the last decade only to, to Nadal himself, for Runa basically to, to say to Novak, okay, let's see, you know, the, the, the Duke of Wellington's phrase, the Battle of Waterloo, hard pounding gentlemen, let's see who can pound the longest. Well, Runa pounded the longest in that set. So that, um, that side of his game, not just the, the serve and then the inside in forehand, the serve plus one forehand, the, the ability to, to stay in the points and say, my legs can win this match not just, um, you know, flashy shot making, 
that that was an eye opener. And so if if Runa goes out in the in the round of 64 in Roland Garros, the draw isn't out yet. But if he if he goes out early, I'll be surprised. I won't be totally stunned. Um, if Runa's there in the quarterfinal and the semifinal stage, I think many of us will think, yeah, the 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 kid is actually showing what he's going to bring to the table. Yeah. You know, our friend, uh, Skip Schwartzman and, you know, his coach, Frank X Brennan, you know, Skip always tells us that winning at elite level tennis, it's not the shots you make, it's the shots you don't miss. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and for Runa to have the wherewithal to, you know, win by not missing and, and, you know, daring Djokovic to be the guy to go for it and Djokovic couldn't do it. Yeah, that shows the competitive chops and the tennis IQ that Holger Runa has cultivated at a very young age. It's going to be fascinating to see how the body uh, can, can accompany the mind at Roland Garros for him. All right, another interesting case study on the men's side before we go to the women. Stefano Tsitsipas, you know, and, and we have spent the past year, year and a half saying, you know, he better get to winning because, you know, you have Alcaraz coming around and now you have Runa rising uh as as an extra problem to deal with and you know i mean he's not he's not he's not playing badly but he's not winning he's not winning championships he's not winning trophies and so the question i have for sitsipas which we're going to put to you is do we just regard stefano sitsipas as a really good solid talented tennis player but someone who you know is has pretty much reached his ceiling and this is going to be the way he is and this is going to be the way he plays and other guys are simply better players and especially competitors than he is or like is is there is a lot being left on the table and are there some obvious adjustments that Sitsipas has to make to realize the full measure of his talent which which side would you fall on or maybe maybe is it just too ambiguous at the moment given what we've seen in this clay season well, I mean, one thing I don't think Sitsipas is doing is surprising us by adapting his game. Uh, maybe you've seen something different to what I've seen, but but I've not seen Sitsipas doing anything recently, maybe even in the last two years or so, where it's like, oh, that's new. Yep. You, you totally you agree. To, He's not seen anything. You, you you talked about Alcaraz adding the the wide kick serve. Uh, you know the, the standing wide and kicking the ball far out to the doubles alley. Yes, I think that the the that is new, or the frequency with which he uses it is new. Um, and just one quick postscript on the um, on the bodies discussion. I just quickly looked up how tall the players are. So uh, Alcaraz is six foot tall. Uh, Runa is six foot two and Sitsipas is six foot four. So one of the things that, that, that Runa, I think, possibly has over Alcaraz at the moment is a little bit more oomph on the serve and the, a bit more ability to win cheap points on the serve. And I haven't looked up the the serving stats, but and and anyone listening to this podcast, if you want to correct me, go ahead. But I 
I, I kind of feel that uh, Runa is going to go through his career winning a few more free points on his service game uh, on average in a three-set or a five-set match than Alcaraz will. And, and over time, that, that may add up. Not saying that, that Runa is going to end up with more big titles than Alcaraz. It's way too early to say. But that height advantage and, and the serve advantage, uh, I didn't want to, to leave the conversation without mentioning that height advantage that Runa has. And we'll see if, if Carlos grows a couple of inches in, in the next couple of years or so. Sitsipas has a two-inch um, advantage on Runa and a four-inch advantage on, uh, on Carlos, but it, he's not really making that, that work for him. And he's he's he, I, I think he's in a position where he does a lot of things quite well. And a player who who I used to say that about was Marin Cilic, that Marin Cilic does quite a lot of things quite well. I, I never thought that, that Cilic did did anything really, really well. There wasn't a single total weapon in Chilich's game where I thought, you know, he's the best in the ATP at being able to do that. And at the moment, the same is true, I think, for, for Sitsipas. He's not the best mover on the tour. He's not the best server on the tour. He's not the best returner on the tour. He doesn't have the heaviest forehand on the tour. He doesn't have the heaviest backhand on the tour. He's not the best at transitioning to net on the tour. And so, so you add up the tools that he has at the moment and you say, okay, what do you have against an, an, an actual elite player? And unless he develops uh, one or two weapons like that, then quite possibly the, the next generation are really going to go past him and lap him. All right, let's segue to the women. And, and in segueing to the women, I'm going to include one very important male tennis uh, player who we haven't talked about yet. And so I'm going to lump these two together. Novak Djokovic, Iga Sviantek, both coming to the French Open with health concerns. And I would just basically want to get your assessment of, you know, how much, I think with Sviantek, it's a little bit clear to say that, you know, how fit is she going to be? That's going to be the question for her in France, but with Djokovic, you know, we got to see that Runa match, which, you know, you, you delved into it a little bit, uh, but, you know, from Runa's perspective, how much did you see of the, the Djokovic match in terms of, well, this is clearly a player who's not, you know, fully healthy yet, or who like, who is clearly sluggish after a long layoff. How much was the loss to Runa attributable to that? How much was it certain things that Djokovic just simply, you know, could have performed on the court, but didn't. How, how would you divide like the health and layoff rust question versus uh, things that Djokovic could have done in the moment to maybe turn around that Runa match? Yeah, it's, it's really hard to, hard to say how much of it was Novak wore a sleeve over his, his right arm and you know, wore it pretty much through the through the tournament. He he'd had issues with it. Uh, he he hadn't had a lot of matches on clay before playing uh, in 
uh, in Rome this week and how much he felt that he knew what he was going to be able to do in every moment that he had complete unthinking confidence to execute versus you know any any kind of, of lingering discomfort in the elbow I don't know how much of it was he came up against a very good player who uh, even if he'd had a full suite of matches um, through the clay court season would have you know, pushed him to five all or beyond in the third. I, you know, I don't think we know that. I I, I do think that um, Novak, having played a full clay court season and possibly gotten to one or more finals, uh, you know, in, in past years, he's lifted more than one big clay court uh, trophy uh, during the season this year. You know, he comes in without a without a tournament win. Typically, we'd have thought that uh, it was if if Rafa wasn't going to be there, it would be Novak versus the field. I don't think we can think that at all for the uh, for the upcoming Roland Garros. Segue now to Sviantek. For for Eager, she was playing a really tough semi-final against uh or was it a quarter-final against Rabakina? Semi. It was a semi-final. There was semi-final against Rabakina. And you know, playing in a tie break, I think that uh you know she was already mini breaks down in the tie break, but it seemed like she had an acute issue with uh her leg. Right at the end of the tiebreak, it was noticed on uh, camera. The commentator spotted that she was bending over and sort of flexing it uh, in the immediate aftermath of possibly extending it. And then finished the match um, at two all in the third set. So it wasn't as if she she wasn't able to, uh, to move around the court. So that makes you think think that potentially it was precautionary and she's she's had a couple of uh tweets to people about going and having scans and and you know trying to get uh fit in time for Roland Garros I think I would be surprised if she doesn't actually make it to uh to the tournament uh, I think she would, let's say that she'd have played against Rabakina and had gone down 6-4 in the third set. Then having had the clay season that she's had so far, beating Sabalenka in Stuttgart, losing in Madrid, and then making the semifinals in Rome, you'd, you'd have pretty much, uh, you know, had Sriantec, head and shoulders as the as the favorite to to take Roland Garros now um I think that there's at least a small asterisk until she's gone through a couple of rounds so as we size up the main contenders uh for Roland Garros and you know so Sviantec is there and we just have to wait and see how fit she is as, as you just outlined uh how would you and let's let's operate under the presumption that Sviantec is 
you know, maybe not 100%, but let's say 90, 95%. And we don't know, but let's just use that as kind of the, the, the baseline for this, this comparison. So a 90% Sviantec, Sabalenka, Rabakina. How do you stack those three players together? Because you'll get a lot of different opinions. Some will say it's, you know, Sviantec, Sabalenka. Some will say it's it's three players. Some might say after Rome that Elena Rabakina really deserves to be above Sabalenka in the pecking order. How would you lay out those three players and, and how uh, their, their different chances are? And, and, you know, one nuance within all this before I let you have the floor, Andrew, is, you know, so you have Sviantec and Sabalenka. They're going to be in opposite halves as the top two. How important is it that Rabakina lands in one half or the other? Um, you know, taking that last question first, um, I don't know, I'm, 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 I'm mentally flipping a coin literally as to whether it, it, it really is important or it isn't because, you know, one of the things that I've, um, highlighted in previous discussions about the the WTA I've tended to focus much more as you know on the ATP than the the WTA and that's partly because of what I've seen as a sort of any given Saturday quality about um, the WTA over the last decade or so it's nothing to do with the, the the current crop of players but it's it it's more the case that we we haven't had many players who have been able to pencil themselves in at the semi-final stage uh, for major tournaments. For a long time, Serena Williams could do it, but virtually nobody else could. And I think we're getting close to the point, although I don't know if we're there yet, where we're going to see multiple players able to do that. And I, you know, the, the reason I was flipping a coin was, are we at the point where both Sviantec and Sabalenka are, you know, looking at their draw and saying, yeah, okay, 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 yeah, okay, looks good. And you're feeling quietly confident of, of making the semi-final stage. And then given her recent history at major tournaments, should we be saying that uh, Elena Rybakina is, is beginning to, to really become someone who you look at her draw and say, okay, quarterfinals for sure, semifinals very likely. Now who's half of the draw is she in? Uh, and that for me would be the, the, the most exciting uh, thing for the WTA to develop uh, is to have four or five players where you thought quarterfinals for sure, uh, three or four of them, you know, a, a, a good chance of, of making the, the semifinal stage. The reason why there was an ATP big four was because all of them were so good at getting through to the semifinals and sometimes better. And it's been, it's been ages since we've been able to say that about the WTA. But 
I, I, I've just got such a positive feeling that that Sabalenka has apparently really cured the service woes that she had for some time. And, you know, her, her movement has, has improved. We were talking a little bit about Stefanos Tsitsipas um, a few minutes ago and saying he, he, we haven't seen him really improve major features of his game. Well, that's two things right there for Sabalenka her serve and her movement, uh, particularly her movement on clay recently. So are we getting to the stage now where rivalries matter and the, the latter stages of, of WTA tournaments, it's okay, now we're coming to the matches between the big guns as opposed to it being an, a no shame on who the WTA 58 player and the WTA 74 player is I don't know who they are, but you've got a semi-final between the the 58 and the 74 player, and you know they they are worthy professionals. Maybe one of them's been playing for 10 years and one of them's been playing for two years. And people who who dive deep into WTA lore can tell you why they're wonderful players and they deserve the chance. But I don't think it's good for the WTA it, as a as a draw as a draw for people's eyeballs, as, a, as, a, as something to, to keep us coming back and back and back to say, OK, you've got the, the fourth seed, the 25th seed and 51 and 94 playing at the semifinal stage. A couple of players I want your uh, insights on in the WTA tour. They both lost early in Rome, and it's not really because they're Americans, though. You know, I, since, uh, you know, we both reside in the United States, uh, people might think that we're focusing on Americans. It's not really. It's because, like, we've seen them knock on the door. One player's made a lot of quarterfinals and semifinals over the past year, year and a half on tour. Another was the Roland Garros runner-up uh, last year. So I'm talking about Jessica Pagula and Coco Goff. So they both lost early. And my question to you, Andrew, on these two players is, you know, given their losses early in Rome and like given how well they have done over the past year, 18 months or so, do you perceive that they're both losing a little steam and that we're going to see an extended lull from them? Or do you think that what happened in, in recent months is a blip on the radar screen and we should still view them as, you know, maybe not top tier contenders the way Sviantec, Sabalenka and Rabakina are, but right behind them? Or, or do you think that, mm, you know, I see some leakage here uh, and, and maybe maybe they're going to go through a prolonged period of difficulty in the midsection of the 2023 season? Yeah, I think if you wanted me to um, bet on um, the roulette wheel, odds and evens, red or black, uh, you know, one side or the other, I'd be less surprised about Pegula going deeper than I would Goff going deeper at the moment. I get a sense that Coco Goff has lost some confidence and that she's potentially second guessing some of the, 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 the shots that she's, she's making. We talk about it, evolution players evolution. Coco Goff has a, has a lot of time still to develop into her overall game. So this could be a blip. 
but you know she she's not she's not sending really strong vibes of someone who is very confident in her singles game at the moment. Um, Pagula um, breakout year for her. Can she sustain it? At the moment, I I definitely place her well behind um, the Rabakina, Sabalenka, and Sriantec trio as you know people to to put your money on to to go deep in the tournament. I I I, I could see her having a, a good run. I think that she's a player who is 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 fiercely competitive and doesn't beat herself. Uh, you ought to say, I think, when you're talking about Goff and Pagula, you wouldn't be surprised to see them lifting a trophy at the end of Roland Garros, but it may not be a singles one. Absolutely. Uh, so you have the t- the big three, or maybe, I don't know if we should call it the big three, but like it's it's really is the top three uh, on the WTA, Sviantec, uh, Sabalenka, Rabakina. Who is a player flying under the radar, you know, outside that top three that you are going to have your eyes on at Roland Garros? Someone who maybe not necessarily not necessarily is like the next best contender, but maybe someone for whom like you you identify this French Open as being important as like a hinge point, uh, an inflection point or just someone you're just naturally curious about in terms of maybe, you know, having inconsistencies uh, in recent month, months, which pretty much applies to everyone other than the top three. So, like, there's a wide selection there. But just another player that you're really going to be looking at and trying to gather some information and some insight on the progression of her career filtered through the prism of this upcoming Roland Garros tournament. Okay, well, I'll, I'll answer your question uh, by giving you a bit of information about the player and and then I am going to put an 80% probability that you're going to guess who I'm thinking of, okay? Okay. Former Roland Garros winner. Oh, that's it. At a very young age. So that that would have to be Ostapenko. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, so... She's another player who, you know, had this 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 breakout year, and then kind of went into the wilderness for a while, but is is, is now back and um, is is one of those players, a little bit like Sabalenka, I think, who who can just take the racket out of your hand if uh, if the balls are, are landing in. It's you know the you know, the oldest cliche in, in the book, that if you hit the ball hard and it lands in, then, then you're going to win. But, um, well, not quite the oldest cliche in the tennis book. That's, you know, get one more ball back, I guess. But still, Ostapenko, um, if, if she's in the, the, on, the, on the winner's podium uh, two, to, two and a half weeks from now, it'll, it'll be a tremendous story it possibly won't be the most surprising story just because she's, she's a player who, if she gets hot, then, then watch out. Absolutely. Like this, this Rome tournament did bring to mind Rome for Rome girls win, because if you recall, you know, she was winning a lot of three setters and we know that like, she's an up and down player. Win the first set, lose the second set, win the third set. We saw that a lot at Rome girls in uh, 2017 
that that was a lot like uh, her Rome run. Here's a follow up yep. on Ostapenko. You know, so she beat Bedosa, and Bedosa earlier in this tournament beat Mukova, and Mukova earlier in this tournament beat Trevisan after being down match point. And the connective thread there is that a lot of wins to me by you know good talented top twenty five top thirty players that I saw in Rome. The wins seem to be as much a, co- a commentary on the opponent not being in top form as it was the winner finding solutions. Like Bedosa Mukova, I mean, Bedosa was not playing great heading into that match, uh, but I didn't trust Mukova's form based on the Trevisan match that I had seen earlier in the tournament. So it's not as though you had two players at the height of their powers. In many ways, these results have felt to me, Andrew, just speaking for myself, like one player dipping rather than a player rising. First, do you get that same sense? But secondly, do you sense a player who is kind of rising, like in the vein of Ostapenko, who might be on the verge of catching the wave at the right time in France? I think one of the things about Rome, and it might even apply to the whole of the the women's clay season, is that it's really hard to generalize from any single tournament. So Rome this year was, you know, there was one of the French doubles players, was it Hallis, you know, was making swimming motions on the court. Um, It was was a soggier clay tournament as as we can have had in, in recent memory. But then you go before Rome to Madrid, well, that's played at altitude. And so that's different. You go before Madrid to uh, Stuttgart and Stuttgart is indoor clay and performs differently. And then if you want to go even further back than that, you know, some of the um, the U.S. clay is, is sort of on the, the hard true style courts. So so looking at the, the WTA clay season, I always feel it, it, it's harder to get. Uh, a real sense of where people are going to be coming into Roland Garros, which is three sets rather than five sets, as the as the ATP is. But it, it it's it's played on these these slightly quirky individual, funky uh, surfaces. So. It, it's it's kind of hard to say, you know. As I as I looked through the the, the rankings list, possibly Kudamatova. Um, you, you you look higher up the lists, and it, it it's really hard to see anyone other than Sriantek, Sabalenka, and Rybakina, who's who's coming in with a bullet. Um, and then Ostapenko, uh, I mentioned uh, Krejcikova has um you know the pedigree but again at the moment is not um is not really lighting it up on the on the single side i think um so if 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 not one of the the big three then it's it's a pretty wide 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 field i think all right we can't end this show without mentioning the two-week format and the scheduling and 
you know, we could go in a lot of different directions here, Andrew, but I think the, the, the one really important thing that we have to mention is, you know, you're, you're well aware of this. Pretty much everyone in the tennis community is well aware of this, that, you know, the Rome got into trouble in pre- past years because of this having Saturday semifinals rushing up against a Sunday final and that whoever played the night semifinal before the Sunday final would have a short turnaround. So it seemed that the whole point of going to a two-week tournament, in addition, of course, to having more ticket sales, more revenues, was to spread out the schedule finally on the last weekend. And yet, we did not have that. Uh, like, should, it, should it be pretty much mandatory that if you're going to be a 1,000-point tournament uh, that has the two-week format and you, you occupy that extra real estate on the calendar – which, you know, has the disruptive effects for other tournaments. Like if you're going to make that move and if, and if tennis, the larger tennis governing bodies are going to allow these tournaments to expand from one to two weeks, should it be mandatory that there should be a day off between semifinals and finals for both the men and the women at any 1,000 point tournament that wants to become a two-week event? Gosh, I don't know. Um, I think that, you know, the players are used to playing, uh, you know, the certainly the big tournaments, but even something like Barcelona, they're used to playing quarterfinal, semifinal, final um, in, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So I'm, I'm not convinced that, that you have to insert uh, a one-day uh, break. I, I, I do think though that having a night session semi-final before a day session final is unconscionable. I, I don't think that that, that 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 can happen. I also would hope that the Rome organizers are going to look at themselves and say, what were we doing having a women's thousand final start in the drizzle at 11 o'clock at night on a Saturday. I can, I can understand given the, the ticket sales that they they'd had the women's final as a night session match that they said, okay, you know, people bought tickets for the final. They get to see the final. Um, sorry, Rabakina and Kalinina, uh, you've got to go out there. But that that's just wrong for athletes. And again, it's wrong for, for promoting the women's game. So it would make much, not so much the, the Saturday-Sunday gap between uh, semifinals. I, Indian Wells has, has for, long, for decades had um, ATP semifinals on the Saturday and then the final Sunday afternoon. But you don't have it in the evening. So what I would do is I'd have the women's and men's finals on the Sunday. I would alternate the 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 start order because I think having women's finals start before the men's finals, particularly if you're, if you're playing three setters, just just tells everyone, hey, the men's final is more important, which it isn't. You know, they are they are joint thousand. Uh, events so you know let's do something that um, honors the the WTA athletes that are participating 
and you know make sure that any player gets a chance to play the final uh, at her or his best. All right. Just any any other things you want to talk about, like things you had written down, made a mental note of uh, that you wanted to be sure to include on this podcast, but which uh, I haven't uh, allowed you to talk about yet. So just final uh, items from Andrew's notebook. I just think the, the final thought would just be a build off of the um, the thought about how to make these tournaments showcases for the best in the women's game and the men's game. Um, John Millman, uh, a you know, long serving Australian tennis player, had a very interesting article about um, the, you know, the relative statuses of the men's game and the women's game. Uh, and, you know, what you got out of the, the tournaments, but also what it said about the, the WTA organization and the ATP organization, which I'd encourage people to read. And I think you can disagree with, a lot with where Millman's coming from. I don't 100% agree with uh, what he says, although I think he's coming from the right direction, which is tennis ought to be a sport where the the performance of the best athletes from the men's side and the women's side should be getting uh, equal honor. I believe it, they, they should be getting equal rewards for it. And we have to find ways of making sure that the money uh, that, that flows to professionals at the the 20th ranking at the 50th ranking at the 150th ranking and the 500th ranking is enough to keep the best athletes in the game and to show that the tennis is spelt the same whether it's played with women on the court or men on the court Andrew Burton, our in-house consultant, analyst, tennis expert here at Tennis with an Accent. We thank him for uh, coming back on the show. And of course, Rowan Garros 2023 coming up. So you're definitely going to get analysis and insight from Andrew. Also from Coach Mert Ertunga and Sakib. So Andrew, we definitely look forward to having you back on uh, repeatedly uh, over the coming fortnight in France. Thanks so much for returning to our podcast. Really appreciate it. My pleasure.